Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everyone. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome. Welcome. Welcome anybody that's tuning in online for the first time. Um, I talk about compassion and forgiveness as uh, the wise response to pain and resentment. And I like to begin and we'll do some, I'll put some instructions in the meditation around compassion and forgiveness. I'd like to begin by uh, asking you to connect with each other, the breakout rooms on the Zoom group and talk to each other in, in person. This might, might, not, might, might not be the best way to, to break the ice with each other, but um, I wanted to ask, is, um, is there ever a situation where compassion is not appropriate? Feels like it sometimes, right? Like, I don't want to have compassion for this situation or this person who has caused so much harm. But so discuss that a little bit, you know, because sometimes your mind probably tells you, Compassion's definitely not the answer. I should hate. I should judge. I should blame. I should suffer rather than meet this experience or this person or this situation with compassion. So find um, a small group, turn, introduce yourself to a couple people, talk about compassion and Finding a way to sit for meditation practice, upright, but also relaxed. Allowing your eyes to be gently closed, taking a moment to release any unnecessary tension the body is holding, soften your brow, your jaw, shoulders, chest, and belly. setting the aspiration to meet anything unpleasant that arises in your mind, your heart, your body with compassion, with friendliness, with care.
We learn compassion by learning to meet our own experience with friendliness, with mercy, tolerance and compassion. The more we can do this for ourselves, the more we naturally can do this for others. So bringing mindfulness to your body, spending a few minutes being mindful of the sensations of your own breath. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in, breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Disengage from the mind's tendency to be in the future or past, planning, remembering, fantasizing. Redirect your attention to the body with this compassionate intention. May I meet anything unpleasant, unpleasant sensations, unpleasant thoughts that draw my attention away from the body with acceptance, with tolerance. Even just softening the belly when you notice how tight it becomes or the jaw clenching and you relax the jaw. It's also an act of compassion. Relaxing into rather than resisting.
mindfulness of the body with the body, non-judgmental, present time awareness. Disengaging from the contents of the mind, resting awareness in the body with each breath, the contact with the chair, the cushion. With this compassionate aspiration, I meet all of the unpleasant phenomena of having a body, a heart, a mind. And I meet it with compassion, with friendliness, mercy, tolerance. As we open to the second foundation of mindfulness, the feeling tone, the non-judgmental awareness of what we're feeling, our perception of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, tones to the sensations, to the thoughts, to the Sensory experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting. Inclining the heart and mind towards identifying what's being perceived as unpleasant. Meeting it with as much acceptance, turning towards it the intention of compassion, even if you can't quite do it yet, just keep inclining your mind, the intention of compassion. And remembering to soften the jaw, the belly, other places in your body that become tight with resistance.
including the mind rather than ignoring it. Let the breath just be another part of your experience, but open to observing the mind, third foundation. What if you had compassion for your own mind? This mind that sometimes feels insecure, afraid, jealous. This mind that takes everything so personally, thinks it has to figure everything out. Self-centeredness, judging, comparing, all of those afflictive mind states, so painful at times. Turn towards your own mind with the intention of compassion. friendliness and acceptance, mercy. There's all of the unskillful tendencies that the human mind has. The judging, the critical. So many unpleasant thoughts arise in our minds. We learn to meet the unpleasant thoughts with compassion. And when unpleasant sensations are felt in the body, you become uncomfortable, your ass starts to hurt, your knees ache, your back. Bring your attention directly into the pain. Try to soften around it and investigate the unpleasantness. Where's the center? Where's the edges? Breathing with it, breathing into it. Just tolerating it, accepting it. This is pain. This is discomfort. No need to avoid it or ignore it. Becoming more and more intimate 
with our own unpleasant sensations and thoughts. With the intention of compassion.
before I get into my thoughts about compassion and, and forgiveness. Um, any questions about meditation practice, about how to work with your experience as you're meditating, if you're new or have some, maybe not new, but have some questions about how to train your mind in this way. Take a few minutes for that. Sometimes I forget to do that. Please. I feel like a lot, you know, there's several different points, but like what we did tonight is a huge aspect of meditation to me. Um, if you couldn't hear the question was, um, well, what's the point of meditation to me and um, to develop compassion, develop, to develop true internal compassion towards our own unpleasant, painful thoughts and feelings. Um, I don't think it's possible without meditation. I don't think we can think our way towards true compassion or study or educate or like we all know compassion is a good idea. <laughs> Most people, you know, kind of by the time you get to a Buddhist meditation group, you kind of think, yeah, compassion is probably going to be a big part of it. But without meditation, um, the mind is not very naturally compassionate. The human organism isn't very compassionate towards our own pain. And so a huge function of Buddhist meditation is uh, through mindfulness of pain, turning towards pain and seeing that our natural tendency is to push it away or avoid it or replace it or to get uh, intimate with our own pain and then learn mercy and compassion and forgiveness towards our own minds and our own hearts and our own bodies. So that's one compassion. Uh, maybe the other, there's two, maybe there's three, three main skills for med meditation. I would, the way that I look at it, one is compassion, a third of it, let's say, compassion. And then the other um, two thirds are non-attachment, letting go of, you know, our tendency to cling. It's not, luckily, it's not like all of life is painful. It's not all compassion all of the time. What do we do when life is pleasant? The craving, the clinging, the attachment to all of the impermanent, pleasant experiences. So meditation is training us to let go, to see the impermanence, to know the truth of impermanence and to live in harmony with that by a non-attached appreciation. And then the third is... Um, learning to not be so reactive and identified with what our mind is doing by turning towards the mind. And this is where mindfulness has to go beyond, from my perspective, where meditation has to go beyond um, just concentrating and ignoring the mind. Like if you're just doing a mantra or even if you're just doing a, a mindfulness of the breath and you're never really totally bringing your awareness to the process and contents of your own brain. So, you know, like that, it's key to do that so that you can see um, how impersonal what your mind is doing is and how it's not who you are and it's not your fault. 
and it's not all that trustworthy, even though we take it, you know, we're like slaves to our minds and we obey it all day, every day, whatever your mind is saying, you're like, yes, master. <laughs> I will think that and feel that and probably say that and do that. And then meditation, when you start turning towards your mind, you start to have a more discernment about what thoughts are trustworthy and what which thoughts are not so trustworthy and how much of this is just the human condition, just the mind, and how much of it is like, actually, that's a good idea. <laughs> that's a kind thought. That's a generous intention. That's there's There's also wisdom in the mind. And so we experience the wisdom and the compassion by training the mind and observing the mind and So tricky because we have to train our minds with our minds. It's not like there's some external thing that's observing. It's it's the mind observing itself. But then awareness starts to develop discernment, wisdom. Compassion, non-attachment, and non-identification in a simple way seeing the impermanent, impersonal, and unsatisfactory nature is what mindfulness leads to, they're called the three characteristics. But for tonight, you know, really focusing on compassion, so necessary. How much of the time are you experiencing unpleasantness? How many unpleasant things did you experience today? And this is also where mindfulness reveals it's not just like big, painful, it's just like unpleasant sounds, unpleasant smells, unpleasant tastes, unpleasant, just sitting in meditation for 30 minutes, unpleasant sensations. My feet hurt, my knees hurt, my back hurts, my mind is busy, unpleasant, this human condition, constant, not constant, but very uh pervasive, uh, prevalent bombardment with unpleasant feeling tones at the ears, at the eyes, at the nose, at the tongue, throughout the body, the heart, the mind, experiences all this unpleasantness every day. And without compassion, what do you do with your pain? How do you naturally respond to your pain without meditation, without Most of us, most of the time, are trying to ignore, trying to avoid hating, resenting, judging, denying, medicating, turning to our phones. This is boring. <laughs> I'll replace it with some entertainment, some scrolling. This is unpleasant, just being me, just with my mind. There was another hand about meditation somewhere, I thought in the back. Did I miss it? Uh, yeah. yeah, Max, please. Um, you kind of touched upon it about that, that last phase, the, the third one about like training the mind with the mind and watching the mind. That um, I just find it confusing. Like the first half is like watch your breath and then and focus on that. 
and like I guess clear your mind maybe right like stop attaching to these thoughts is kind of my interpretation of that but then like can I use headspace and I'll do it for 20 minutes in the morning that's kind of as far as that will take me yeah like if you have a thought let it go and and here it's like we reach this point where it's like now watch your mind I've heard this metaphor it's like you know uh you don't want to go chasing your thoughts like down the freeway or whatever you're going to get hit or something but it's almost like that's what i interpret you to encourage us to do so i just i'm confused um try to reframe it a little bit for the people at home that can't hear the um max is asking about you know this difference between uh, some instructions that might say you know just uh if you notice a thought just let it go maybe come back to the breath but but don't don't get too involved in investigating it or and then what i'm saying um and that image of the freeway like okay i like the image of the freeway but you don't want to go out into the freeway and you know you don't want to run after it or that part of what i'm saying is um so i can use the freeway analogy that the third foundation of mindfulness the buddha says know the mind know what's arising um, both the content of like oh this is craving this thought that is lust or whatever is i can name it it's craving it's you know it's desire this this thought that's here is aversion it's you know something unpleasant is happening and i fucking hate it and so that i can say like oh this whole all these thoughts that are going on about i hate this pain our aversion our resistance so if we're you know if your mind is the freeway sometimes the thoughts are going so fast you know there's not that much traffic not like in la we you know but it's going so fast and you're just like all i know is that there's a whole bunch of racing thoughts going by and some of them are craving some of them are aversion maybe some of them are actually quite wholesome but they're going by too fast for me to really catch uh, the passengers or whatever. Sometimes in meditation, like you, you were saying, um, after about my, my experience is that after about 20 minutes, most of the time, um, the mind will slow down a little bit, not clear, but it's almost like, I don't think a traffic jam is quite the right, but where it's like, they're moving a little bit slower and you can kind of identify like, oh, that is a craving for this. Oh, look at the mind planning this or oh that that that's the argument carpool <laughs> right uh, i'm rehashing this conflict that i had and it keeps going by and it's this really repetitive thought my mind keeps thinking about i should have said this or they i can't believe they said that or whatever it was and you can actually identify that's what the mind is thinking about and i'm awareness is knowing it and you can see what the passengers in that car are because it's slowed down enough to catch it a little bit more and say okay the buddha doesn't he kind of classifies it as are they wholesome thoughts or unwholesome when the mind is experiencing greed no this is the mind experiencing greed or this is the mind experiencing hatred so in these kind of bigger classifications and sometimes you can really pretty easily be like yep that's craving that's aversion and then you can say, actually, there's some thoughts, some cars going by that aren't greed. 
non-greed, non-hatred, that our loving kindness, that our compassion, oh, oh, I'm having this compassionate thought. I'm having this generous thought and observing that as it drives by. And the freeway is a good analogy because all of the thoughts are passing through. None of them are parked. <laughs> They're all impermanent. You know, as, as more you watch the mind, the more you see whatever arises, passes, everything is traveling through awareness. Some of it's very um, repetitive. That thought arises and it passes, and then it comes back, re-arises, passes again, and it feels like it's on this sort of loop. Craving loop, aversion loop, self-centered loop, loneliness loop, and it feels like I've been feeling this way all day, but mindfulness reveals they arise and they pass, and they re-arise. And then they pass and then they re-arise. Does that make sense? We are, this is absolutely what the Buddha was encouraging, not just mindfulness of the breath, not just ignoring or clearing the mind, but becoming intimate with the mind so that we can learn how to respond more wisely. This is craving, it's calling for non-attachment. This is a version it's calling for compassion, maybe forgiveness. And that we have to become intimate, aware, not chasing, you don't wanna go out into it, but you wanna really know, oh, this is what this thought is and what the wise response to this thought is. So that we're responding to what's happening in our minds rather than reacting or obeying. Some clar clarification there? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I'm hearing like identify, but in my mind, I want to say judge the thought and kind of, I guess, try to leave it at that though. Let it go after that. The definition of mindfulness is non judgmental awareness. So even saying this is craving, no judgment, just discernment, that's actually what this is. Or you know, like, or with the feeling tones. This is a painful thought. I'm not judging it as painful. It's just what it is. This is a painful thought. This is a pleasant thought. These thoughts are neutral. This is craving. This is aversion. This is fear. I'm not judging it as fear. I'm just naming it. It's more like an inventory of what's here, what's on the shelves. <laughs> what is, I'm inventorying it. Uh, rather than judging it at all. Because there's no, the way I think of judgment is that's a good thought. That's a bad thought. I'm a bad person for having lusts. I'm a bad person for hating. No judgment, just discernment. My mind hates. <laughs> My mind lusts. My mind fears. Non-judgmental acceptance of those afflictive tendencies. And this is where the conversation is so important and Sangha is so important and the Dharma, the Buddha's teachings, because it totally normalizes it rather than the judging Judeo-Christian or maybe even some of the psychological things that we're conditioned with that say like, well, it's a sin or it's bad or it's, you know, even, even our sort of identity politics stuff that happens where it's like so much judgment on the human condition. So little compassion 
on the human condition. Rather than just like, yeah, the humans have minds that are very um, unwise without training. And we all have that mind. And this is where the Buddha starts with the um, normalizing of suffering, normalizing of craving and aversion and self-centeredness. It's not because you're neurotic. It's not because you're bad. It's certainly not because you're sinful. It's just that you took birth <laughs> and you have a mind and it craves and it judges and it fears and it lusts and it clings and it doesn't have much compassion for itself. But as you become more and more intimate, aware, awake to the tendency of your mind, and the more we have this conversation and you're in the room with you know, 50 people who are saying, yeah, mine too, it normalizes it. The more you study the Dharma, the more it normalizes the human condition rather than um, making it so neurotic. Uh, there was a hand in the back there, yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering if you personally like mentally note each time or do you just kind of have an awareness of your thoughts? I still do some noting. The question was, do I, in my practice, um, personally note or do I just have an awareness? I've been trying to stop noting for a long time, but I condition it. Noting... The Buddha never said note, um, but it's a good technique. It's a skillful means to when you're identifying it to say, this is greed and kind of put the label on it. This is craving. This is aversion. This is, it's, for me, it was so helpful in the beginning to start to see what my mind was doing, what emotions were here, what thoughts were coming, but it's a really hard habit to break. In the suttas, uh, in the Satipatthana, I'm not sure what the Pali, the original word is, but it's translated as know when this is present, not note it, not name it, not label it, but just know this is aversion, this is craving, this is kind of the second part of your question. Just be aware that that's what's happening. We don't even have to put the label. You don't even have to... Um, it's really hard to do that without labeling it. The mind likes lists, likes labels, likes. So sometimes I'm able to just be aware of what's passing through, but a lot of the times that tendency to note it and label it is still there in my own practice. Trying to break that habit, but not trying that hard because also it's not that much of a, hindrance to, to label it, but to just know that the difference between the label and the direct experience, there is a difference. And then even by the time, like, like when you're meditating, you ever note now, uh, present moment, breathing in, you know, right now, by the time you say now, that label, that note right here now, things are moving so quickly that now is gone, here is past. <laughs> By the time you say it, because it's 
passed through the, uh, uh, so even by the time you say this is greed, your mind might be onto some other thing altogether. Might have already passed. I saw a hand somewhere. Is there a hand somewhere online? No, no. Oh, Ed, go ahead. Hi, Noah. Um, yeah, my question is, is about this um, noting, which I never did because I tried to um, just do this saying, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither and um i was just wondering what the difference between the whole thing is because you know because it brings up another another item which is that when the buddha you know gave these talks on on um how to meditate i i guess we assume that these are the meditations like the satipatthana sutta and the anapanasati or how he became enlightened, but that doesn't mean that they'll take me to enlightenment. There may be something else that would take me there or take you there. And so, and he did try a lot of different things. So he had this big foundation before arriving at um, his awakening. So <laughs> as a person who's, who would like to become awakened before I die, you know, I was just wondering and I have been wondering about, you know, the noting I kind of rejected because I thought it wasn't there in the suttas. And, but the, and now I'm beginning to wonder if these are right for me. Like, are they really different for different people? How to like wake up? And so now I'm really confusing myself with putting this all out there. But I know sometimes you're able to sort through this stuff. So maybe you can make sense of it, what I'm saying. Well, let me ask you, Ed, and anybody else that maybe resonates with this question. Um, is the question itself coming somehow out of... I'm getting an echo from my... Maybe me, yeah. Um, is the question coming from some disillusionment with mindfulness? Um, have you been, uh, my, my sense is, uh, in my experience, 30 something years now of practicing Theravada meditation, primarily Satipatthana based and Brahma Vihara based, the heart practices, and uh, that I feel very satisfied with the results. And I don't have much um, disillusionment, like my own practice has led me to like, this shit works really well. Like I'm not in, I'm not totally awake or enlightened, but my suffering just keeps decreasing and my compassion keeps increasing and my ability to navigate difficulties. Like I come away from three decades of this path, satisfied customer, <laughs> not perfectly enlightened, but really feeling like I'm so grateful I have these tools. And I continue to apply these tools and they continue to work for me. Non-attachment always feels like the right thing. Compassion always feels like the right thing. Um, forgiveness always feels like 
like, I, you know, like this path has steered me in the right direction. And there's more to learn and there's more uh, compassion to, to develop and more um, wisdom to, to be uncovered, but not, so I don't know if I'm, if I'm answering your question and you can answer, um, you know, that, that reflection of, is it coming from some level of dissatisfaction, the question itself? No, I think you're right. I hadn't put that all together, but it is. It's like, I sit here on my pillow and I'm fine. I can get some peace of mind, but I go out into the world and if things aren't going my way, I can get really bent out of shape. And then I can start, you know, responding <laughs> in ways that are unpleasant at best. So yeah, I guess how, there is how, a- How long have you been practicing this technique? Long time? Um, about 10 years, maybe. And if you kind of look at your reactivity and everybody can kind of think about this. Have you seen, are you a little bit less reactive now than you were 10 years ago? A lot of times, yes. Yeah, but sometimes you still have reactive moments. There, there is that thing where it's like, you can make all of this progress and then you yell at someone. And you're like, I've made no progress at all. I'm the worst right. Buddhist in the world. Um, rather than like, I used to yell at people regularly, or I used to, you know, um, suffer almost every day at people. And now it only happens occasionally. Right. That's what it is. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, that other part of your question of like, yeah, it worked for the Buddha. Maybe there's other things that'll work for different people. I'm open to that. I tend to think that like there is a universal human truth. And then it's not just Buddhist, it's just humanist. And compassion isn't Buddhism. Uh, it's not just, you know, the B Buddhists don't have the corner on compassion. Compassion is just the wise response to pain. And you'll find it in every religion and you'll find it in every you know, um, like neuroscience is so interesting now that's not spiritual at all. It's science and it's studying of the mind. And they're coming up with all the same things that the Buddha came up with of like, you know, non-reactivity and non-attachment and tolerance and compassion ends distress and suffering. And it has nothing to do with a spiritual teaching. It's just how does the human mind work, which was really what the Buddha was interested in. How does the mind create suffering for us? Mind and body and heart, emotions. And he saw this mindfulness, four foundations, body, feeling tone, mind states, what's true about your mind, leads to a non-reactivity and to a compassionate, non-attached response that ends suffering. Some say, I was talking to somebody about this recently. I know I was trying to talk about compassion tonight. We're talking about mindfulness, but mindfulness and compassion really are interconnected, totally interconnected. Um, we take the four foundations of mindfulness as meditation instructions. I think maybe one, and I, I think we were talking about this. We take the four foundations of mindfulness of like, this is what you do. 
you sit down and you pay attention to your breath and then you pay attention to your body and then you pay, pay attention to the feeling tones and then pay attention to your mind. And this is what you, you know, here's how to train your mind, mindfulness. It's been proposed, and I think it's quite interesting to think about that maybe the mindfulness teachings are not meditation instructions, but are a description of what the human being experiences when they pay attention. Rather than this is how you have to pay attention to get enlightened, if you pay attention (laughs) to your body, to your mind, to your emotions. This is what is happening here. Arising and passing, clinging and aversion, arising and passing, clinging and aversion. And the more you pay attention to it, the more you learn to let go, to not take it so personal, to have compassion. I tend to take it as meditation instructions, but I like that idea that mindfulness is a description rather than an instruction. Because the Buddha didn't have any meditation instructions on mindfulness. And I think like Zen Buddhism is quite interesting where they don't teach you how to meditate. (laughs) They say, just sit there, (laughs) sit in your posture, Put a lot of awareness into your posture, face the wall, eyes half closed, just sit there and see what what was revealed by just sitting there with awareness. And what's revealed? The truth of impermanence, (laughs) the truth of uh, needing to have compassion for pain and tolerance. The four foundations of mindfulness are revealed rather than directed. Please. Um, I think I have a little bit of a misconception of Buddhism, and maybe you can help me out a little bit, because I have read a lot. Um, I have been to some retreats, and, and I, I really enjoy the teachings, but when I get really deep into some of it, um, the ultimate goal, everybody thinks, is enlightenment. Yeah. But what I read and what I perceived what I read is almost like it's not to be happy or miserable. It's to not feel anything. And that's like nihilistic or whatever. And I know that's not the case, but I just don't understand it any other way. So is enlightenment like bliss or like nothing? Or I don't, I don't really get it. Uh, Tara, would you turn the AC back on? Because that's really what nirvana is. is. (laughs) Uh, The way I think about it, the problem with religion or spiritual teachings is you're going to get a whole bunch of different answers from different people. Um, so you're asking me, and I come primarily from a kind of Theravadan, Southeast Asian-based Buddhist perspective, but I'm also such a, like, you know, American influenced by Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism. And so you get different answers for this kind of what's the goal. Um, the Buddha, the way that I think about what the Buddha taught was, here's how you can end suffering. So the end of suffering 
sometimes means that life is really painful and you're not suffering about it because you have compassion for it. It doesn't mean that it's blissful all of the time. It means that you still have a human mind and body and sickness and aging and death. And you live in this world where there's all of this confusion and ignorance and oppression. And it's really unpleasant sometimes to be alive, even if you're in, un, enlightened, fully enlightened, not suffering about how unpleasant it is, un, how many unpleasant people you have to interact with but not suffering about it, having compassion for the unpleasantness, the pain, the, the difficulties. The end of suffering means the wise response, responding with compassion to pain. But it also means the wise response of responding with non-attached appreciation to joy, to pleasure, to wholesome, pleasant experiences. So the goal is, can I enjoy what is to be enjoyed without getting too attached to it and suffering about it, non-attached. Be happy. I don't have any problem with actually saying that happiness is the goal. But happiness isn't the presence of pleasure all of the time. Happiness has to include pain. Be happy even when it's painful. And that's where happiness feels like, wait, that's, those two things don't mean the same thing. Be free from suffering in the midst of pain. Be free from suffering in the midst of pleasure, but don't avoid it. Don't, you know, I forget how you said it. I'm going to blank out or yeah. totally experience embodied joy when that's happening. When you're in the midst of it, love it without ruining it by clinging. So, the, the end of suffering is non-attachment, is compassion. Is suffering just like focusing on pain and letting it ride out longer than it needs to? Is that what suffering is? Suffering is meeting uh, any pain with resistance rather than compassion. You know, there's a, a simple equation. Any, you know, pain plus resistance, anger, fear, whatever, equals suffering. Pain plus compassion, no suffering, just pain. It's removing that extra layer of pleasure plus clinging equals suffering. Pleasure met with non-attachment, no suffering. The end of suffering is non-attached, compassionate response to life. And it makes sense, right? Can Just think about it. If you could go through life meeting all of your pain with compassion, how much better would your life be? So much better, worth living. If you could meet all of the pleasure that you experience without clinging to it and just in letting it come and go and knowing it's impermanent, not taking it so personal, the level of satisfaction the level of well-being that you would feel and report is uh, infinite. And I think that this is that my perspective on this is what we're doing in Buddhism. How can I have more compassion, therefore less suffering, more non-attachment, therefore more joy, more happiness, more sense of contentment, no matter what's happening. 
rather than being dependent on the presence of pleasure and the absence of pain. What a dead end that is. I'm only happy when shit's pleasant and not painful. And then it's, you know, never lasts long enough. And it could always be a little bit better, even when it's good. Does that help kind of yeah. the, the definition of nirvana, third noble truth, is the extinguishing of greed, hatred, and delusion. Living a life, and greed is clinging, craving, clinging. Living a life free from clinging, free from hatred. So you can replace that and say non-attached, compassionate awareness. And it's not so mystical or magical or um, nirvana is not some holy non-human. It's really humanists. It's really uh, the only wise relationship to pain is compassion. Just having a wise response. It's not easy. We're all over here going like, yeah, I want, I want that. I want to do that. I want to be compassionate. I can't, you know, it's so hard. Ed, you know, questioned before of like, I'm trying, but I get reactive. I don't have compassion all of the time when I turn on the news or if I can look at social media and see how poorly humanity is behaving today. <laughs> hard to not it's it's not um it's one of the reasons why the buddha and our whole my whole flag we've been flying over here for the last 20 years of it's against the stream and the buddha referred to his own awakening as going against greed hatred and delusion and that the stream the norm is clinging is greed it's normal suffering is normal not suffering is a radical proposal that we're undertaking here where we have to rewire our whole nervous system <laughs> our whole mind and this is where that third foundation you can't rewire and learn to respond differently by ignoring your mind you have to bring mindfulness to what's arising and passing through your mind in order to change your relationship to it There was a hand over. Juan, did you? There were, I saw a couple of hands. Something I wanted to add. I think one of the most useful things, because I, you know, definitely, I think I spent a third of my practice, if not more, suffering. You know, like I was trying to follow the directions, and I was just, I was, you know, like becoming really aware of uh, the first level of truth. You know, and what really helped was when you know, it was putting in the list the uh, the idea of. She threw on this idea that I'd heard before, but it didn't quite make sense until then. Was the idea of two minds? There's the there's the, the, the thinking mind, the part of our evolutionary you know need for food, clothing, shelter, which degenerates into greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, but then there's there, but there's that separate the second mind, the awareness, just awareness of that, and making that distinction I found was really helpful in my practice mm -hmm. because I, you know I, a lot of us I think stew when we do mindfulness practice without until we see that difference between that there is another awareness we have outside of the thinking mm -hmm. 
I don't know if that's helpful. Mm -hmm. I like that. Thank you. There was, did both of you? Yeah, please. Yeah, I was going to ask um, if to feel something or experience something without resistance, would that mean at times you're feeling something more, even more deeply? Um, like to experience grief with compassion without resistance? Like, how would you describe the feeling experience? I mean, my initial the, the question for those of you at home was if we um, have this practice of non-resistance and with difficult emotions like grief, uh, does it mean that we have to feel it more deeply? My initial kind of thought was probably when we're not distracting ourselves from it and we're turning towards it, maybe we feel it more uh, intensely or more deeply. But also, I think that with grief in particular, uh, it allows us to feel it and process it and let it come through and, and feel the sadness and feel the loss and, and the craving that's around, you know, I wish this wasn't happening and the denial and the bargaining and the anger and the whole, all the stages <laughs> that come through. Um, but with when we turn towards it, yes, more deeply. But when we turn away from it, it's more repetitive. Notice in your mindfulness, in your that when you ignore stuff, it keeps knocking. When you try to suppress and ignore, and you know, you know, all of us like we're like trying to heal our trauma as adults because as kids, we're like, I'm not fucking feeling that shit, and it's still here. And so mindfulness, when you turn towards it, allows you to process it more deeply rather than uh, drag it with you. Sometimes, you know, the kind of, yep, let it come through, fully feel it. Something like grief is going to be cyclical anyways. There's going to be those stages and process with it. But I think it's going to set us more free from it rather than it continuing throughout our whole life saying like, you never really felt me. When we really feel our sadness, when we really feel our loneliness, when we really feel our grief and say, I'm intimate with this, I'm open to it. I'm not avoiding it, ignoring it, suppressing it, drinking it away, doing any of that. I'm tending to it. And somebody mentioned my father earlier, who's one of my teachers and um, you know, taught me a lot of this stuff. I think his best book, and I'm not even sure if it's still in print. I, I hope it's still in print, but he wrote a bunch of great books. Stephen Levine, he wrote a bunch of great books, Who Dies and Gradual Awakening and, uh, you know, spent his life talking about mindfulness and healing and grief and death and dying. And he wasn't the best parent, but he was a wonderful teacher. <laughs> awesome, awesome teacher in a lot of ways. And uh, one of my favorite books of his was um, Unattended Sorrow. And it's this whole perspective of what happens when we don't tend to our sorrow, to our suffering, to our grief, to our traumas, to our wounds. And that so much of what we're doing in meditation is turning towards and tending to with compassion, with forgiveness, with tenderness, with mercy, 
to our, the sorrow of our life, the parts of our life. Not, you know, let me get too dour. It's not like all of life is sorrowful. There's lots of joy. There's lots of great stuff in life, but the sorrowful parts that we're not very good at tending to, because we're like, ooh, that it would be too, it's gonna be worse if I turn towards it. And I'm so used to turning away from it. I know how to do that. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to just sit here and feel it. But it, it actually is the solution. Tending to our sorrow, tending to our grief, tending to this mind and learning compassion. And then also starting to wake up to like, it's not that personal and it's not your fault that you hate pain and that you didn't tend to it sooner. It's the human condition. But it's totally safe to, I feel like sometimes the mind likes to create a, an argument or a fear that like this will overwhelm me if I turn towards it. That kind of part of the mind that says you should keep running. You should keep avoiding should keep ignoring it's safer and it's perfectly safe to feel your own sorrow your own sadness to meet it with compassion and it's not only safe it's liberating ultimately all right well i didn't quite get to my compassion and forgiveness talk tonight <laughs> but i like this better actually to actually have some dialogue with you real stuff that's up in the in the room in the sangha we'll leave it there for tonight and um, class is done by donation if you can afford a 15 or 20 dollar donation for the drop-in whether you're attending on zoom or in person that's the sort of ballpark suggestion and know that whatever you give is gratefully appreciated and if that's a couple bucks or five bucks or ten bucks whatever it is uh, our monthly rent is $3,500 plus about a few hundred dollars a month in utilities. And the donations don't quite cover it a lot of the time. Um, so please be as generous as you can. I actually need to start doing some fundraising to actually raise some money for Against the Stream. Um, not really good at it, but give us your money. <laughs> See, I'm not very good at it. Um, Maybe somebody wants to help me with fundraising. Maybe somebody in the Sangha is good at fundraising. I mean, we're a nonprofit. That I'm, we've never really done the like writing grants. It's always just the Sangha donating, people that come here supporting it. And we used to have some kind of benefactors, major donors that would like give us lots of money and help us pay for stuff. And uh, they're not around anymore. So it's just us. And uh, if you can be helpful and, and make some larger donations, it's great, greatly, greatly appreciated. May any goodness that comes from our practice be gathered in our hearts and shared to everyone here in the Sangha. May we meet each other with compassion May we extend out beyond the community in all directions, meeting all living beings with compassion. May each one of us do what needs to be done to free ourselves from suffering 
and together may we be part of a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.